Hey, you're listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. In this week's sermon, Lee Cadden preaches from Matthew 1 and Luke 2 in week 4 of our sermon series, Unto Us. Again, welcome and good morning. This is, um, this is actually some of my favorite weather. I'm just going to go ahead and get that out of the way and say it for all of you people who were sad this morning. I was really excited. My wife was among the sad uh, in the room, but for me, I really, really do Love cold, rainy, dreary weather. Fine Scottish weather, as they say. Um, This week we are in uh, week four of a series that we've called Unto Us, taking from Isaiah's prophecy of the coming of Christ and of the the fulfilled scripture that would be in the Messiah in Jesus. Last week, Matt preached from Matthew chapter one. We're going to resume this morning in Matthew chapter one. So if you have your Bible and want to go ahead and turn there, you are welcome to do that. Last week, Matt talked about the genealogy of Jesus and just the history of the family that would eventually bring the Messiah into the world of God's faithfulness, not depending on the faithfulness of people, of God's goodness, his mercy, his continuing and unending love, continuing regardless of the reputation, regardless of the country of origin, regardless of uh, having it together or not, and God in his goodness graciously engrafts the outsider. That was the the takeaway for me last week, was that God's faithfulness endures through all generations and all time, everywhere, seen ultimately in the face of Jesus, even unto me, someone who is the least likely to receive of his goodness, to be engrafted into his family, to have a very clear and divine purpose kind of wrapped up in everything that he's done in my life, everything that he's doing in our lives, and everything that he's always done in the lives of his people. So this morning, we're going to continue in that thought of believing in the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God, starting in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to jump over to Luke 2 and then back to Matthew 2. And so if you have your Bible and want to bounce around, you can. If not, uh, most of these will be on the screen. We talked at length over the last several weeks about the faith of Mary and the goodness of God to speak to her and meet with her. And this morning, he does much of the same thing with her betrothed husband, to be. Starting in verse 18, it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's character is obviously on display as a a very uh, real, kind of honest look into what's going on internally for him as he finds out that his, not fiancé, but his betrothed, which in their day was a whole nother step of legal binding nature of being betrothed to another person. It was basically like being married, but not yet legally. And there was just as much wrapped up in the breaking apart of that decision or of that betrothal as there was inside of marriage. Joseph's 
character, though, is on display at the same time. While he's wrestling through, how do I respond to this? What do I do with this? He doesn't respond rashly as I probably would have. He doesn't respond in such a way that says, you know what? That's it. It's over and off. Joseph stops for a moment, and he decides that he's going to do the only thing that he could possibly do to try to make sense of this, and he prays. He takes a moment and comes to the Lord, and the Lord faithfully in that moment meets him with the angel of God, and he says, listen, don't do the thing that you want to do, even though the way you were going to do it as a just man, as one who was unwilling to bring her to shame, is going to divorce her quietly. While he was in his right to do that, under any normal circumstance, this is not a normal circumstance. And the angel speaks to Joseph and he says, no, 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 the child that is in Mary's womb is of the Holy Spirit. He will be the Son of God. He will be Jesus, the Savior. And he, he will be the one who is to come and save the people from their sins. And in verse 22, it says that all this took place. All of this took place to fulfill what God had said. What God had said is that there would be a virgin who would conceive, who would bear a son. His name would be Savior. He would be the one who would come into this world, and he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. All this took place. All this took place to fulfill what God had said. And so when we start thinking about, okay, Jesus is born into this world, and it says very kind of matter-of-factly here in Matthew of the events of that day or that evening, it says that he was Born, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, we miss all of the being born part in this story. So fortunately, we have Luke's gospel. So let's jump over there in Luke chapter 2 and read what Luke has to say of this moment. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. Such a famous or infamous, perhaps in our minds, version or image of what happened on that night. They've been commanded by the Roman government to go back to their hometowns to be registered so that a census could be taken. And when we read chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, it really kind of lands with the why in all of this happened. All of this took place back in Matthew. All of these things happened that the word of God might be Fulfilled, And as I was wrestling through that this week, I kind of came to this point where I realized that God moved the entire Roman Empire to fulfill one verse. That God in his goodness would make everybody, if they were outside of their hometown, which many of them were at that time, that they would have to go back to the place that their family was originally from, originally from, like, I don't even know where that place is. It's somewhere in northern Mississippi for me. I'd have to, like, try to find out where that place is. Joseph, in his goodness, knows where he's going, so they go to Bethlehem, the city of David, and the entire Roman Empire is on the move because of God's desire and will to fulfill the scripture that says that he will be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born in the city of David in Micah chapter 3. All of this. God rearranging the entire empire was so that we would read and we would see 
and the people would believe by faith, regardless of the generation and the time in which they come, that God fulfills his word. That everything that God has ever said would happen either has happened or will happen. And we in these last days are awaiting the final happenings that will be coming that are promised. That Jesus said ultimately on that day in these last days when you think about my coming again believe that I will fulfill my word because my word is the only word that is true. And as I think about that for us in this Christmas season man there are a lot of not true words. There are a lot of empty promises in this life. There are a lot of things that come up short of the things that they promise to deliver on. But the reality for us this morning as we think about Christmas and as we worship him and as we wait for him and as we wait for him to come again, all of those things land with the fact that God will go to whatever extreme, whatever end necessary to make good on his word, even to the end of rearranging the most amazing, largest, most powerful empire in the history of the world, all that the virgin would conceive of a son, and that son would be born in the city of David, just as his word promised it would be. And so if, if nothing else this morning, that we, if we don't take away anything else, would it be that God's word is true, it is real, it is bedrock for our soul when we believe and think of his coming and his promises to come again, regardless of the flurry that is around us, this is sure and true and right for us to depend on. Amen? So Matthew goes on, and he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this is chapter 2, verse 1, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means last among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. For Micah. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what, the star, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that, had, that they had seen when it rose, when they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These wise men, whom traditionally we've believed to be three because of the three gifts, um, we don't actually know if there were three of them. In fact, we don't really know how many of them came. It could have been three. It could have been two. It obviously has to be more than one. Uh, but these traditional wise men, as we've called them, come from the Greek word magos or magi or magi, meaning wise men, but obviously having the root word of magicians or of astrologers or of those who looked to the skies, especially from the east, looked to the skies for answers, looked for the skies to the skies for hope, looked to the skies for the interpretation of dreams, looked to the skies or to the heavens for anything that would bring any type of confidence in their circumstances or in their events. There is an abundance of speculation 
uh, and I got down into the weeds with this this week, trying to figure out and discern where were these guys from, and what did they know, and what did they not know, what was revealed to them supernaturally beforehand, what was revealed to them on their journey, how long was their journey, and finally I just got to this point where I just took a deep breath, and I was like, whoa, 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 while I would love to know all of those things, does it really matter? But I did start asking the questions, would they have known the stories that had been told about the coming Messiah. They obviously knew that this was his star, so they knew something was going on about this king that would come into the world to save it. Were these guys passed down for hundreds of years from the magicians and astrologers who couldn't interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams in Babylon when Daniel could? Were they in a long line of magicians and astrologers who had realized that their religion was not really coming to any type of conclusion, that it was all speculation, that it was all looking into the stars. What we don't know is much. But what we do know is that here's a group of men who are professional religious magicians, astrologers, wizards, take your pick on the word. Um, And while they may have likely been from Babylon, there came a day when they saw a star. And when they realized that this star was no ordinary star, and this star was worth following, this star was worth going after, this star was worth pursuing, this star was worth going to the end of wherever it was pointing and figuring out who is it the one that this one was lighting the way for. Regardless of what they did know or didn't know specifically, we do know that they journeyed a long way. And at great risk and cost to themselves, they risked everything to put their eyes On Jesus. They risked everything to go and find the one whom this star was pointing the way for. And and like anybody probably would have who had the capacity to do this, they show up. If it's in Israel, okay, well, let's go to Jerusalem. That's where the king will be born. And obviously, the king was not born there. And the king who was there was royally ticked off that these guys had come to find the king because he was the king, right, in this story. And it says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed because this king wasn't where. They all self-righteously thought he should have been. No, he was in the place that God always said he would be. And it says when they found the star, when they found the place that it was shining, that it was pointing to, that it was leading them towards, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they went in and they fell down and they worshiped because Jesus was worth it. Jesus was worth the cost. Jesus was worth the journey. Jesus was worth their reputation. Jesus was worth now even the potential of the loss of their life because of the conversation they had just had with Herod. Jesus was worth all of it for them to put their eyes on him and say, worthy, worthy, worthy is he whom we've come to seek. And they fell down and they worshiped him. And then as they worshiped him, they opened their treasures that they offered him. They opened their treasures that they gave him out of reverence. They opened their treasures that they gave with all that they were. They opened their treasures that they took great risk to bring to him and great personal cost to lay before his feet, not because he needed them, but because he was worthy of them. So there's a difference in the way we think about bringing our treasure, bringing our lives to the feet of Jesus, to the feet of the king. We can either do so because we believe in some way we're adding to Or we can do so in a way that says, no, 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 we are not adding to, we are ascribing to. We are offering not because he needs, we are offering because he has given and he 
is worthy. We don't add, as the wise men are not adding to Jesus with the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. We come and ascribe to him with our offering, with our lives, with our gifts, with everything that we are, because he is worthy of it. Ascribe simply means to credit as the source. So I don't add because he needs, I don't worship because it makes him greater. I don't worship him because now because I've done so, he is somehow greater or higher or better. No, he is already those things, and so my worship is in ascribing. These wise men, regardless of what they didn't know, got that. And they bring their best. They bring this sacrificial, risky offer because they are fully aware in this moment, especially now in this moment. Like they were mostly convinced enough for them to go on this journey, but now having seen Jesus, they are fully convinced that he is absolutely worthy of their worship in this kind of way, and they fall on their face and worship him, and they open their treasure before him because of Jesus' worthiness. Matthew gives us, a glimpse into this person, this baby, that they are, in fact, worshiping. He calls him by two different names previously in chapter 1. These two names are both descriptors and names of this baby born in Bethlehem. And I believe in this moment, these magi from the east who have journeyed all this way, they understood these things to be true about Jesus. The first thing that he is called in Matthew chapter 1 in verse 21 is that his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus simply means Savior. When we say Jesus, this is a funny thing about names in America, right? Like we don't have a full understanding of what names have always meant. But when anybody ever heard Jesus' name, they didn't hear Jesus. They heard Savior or the Lord saves, the one who saves. So every time his mom calls his name as a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old when he wouldn't listen, six, seven, eight-year-old, nine-year-old when he wouldn't listen, I don't know when that stops, parents. At some point, they have to start listening, right? In those moments, every time he heard his name, he didn't hear Jesus. He heard Savior. The Lord saves every single time. And they, on that day, when they showed up, these magi, with their gifts, they saw this baby with his mother, and his mother said, his name is Savior. And they fell down, and they worshiped him. But not only is it his name and who he is, it's also what he would do. It was the reason that he came into the world, that he would be the Savior for all who believe in him, that he would save people from sin, from pain, from brokenness, and eventually from death, and he would save them to life, to peace, to joy, to eternity with him and with the Father. Jesus just wasn't another person. This was the one who was promised who would come, who would save his people unto eternity. This is the one that John says in 1 John, this is the one that came, and the reason that the Son of God came, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came on a mission to destroy the works of the enemy. And then John records Jesus' very words saying this in John chapter 3, that, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came, this Savior came to destroy the works of the devil and to save all who put their trust in him and all who believe in him and who hope in him. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus said that, yes, there is a very real thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. When the Magi show up in that tiny cave with gifts, 
that are ascribed to the King of kings and Lord of lords. They are ascribing gifts to the one who came to destroy the works of the devil, who came not to condemn but to save, and who came to free us from the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy and promise us life abundantly. That's an incredible promise. That's an incredible thing that these men had journeyed so far to put their hope in. Jesus was born Savior. But not only that, Jesus was born Savior in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 7 when he says that he will be called Emmanuel. He is Savior Emmanuel, which means God with us. God who came as one of us. God who came as both fully God and fully man. God who would know the hearts of men. God who would know their thoughts. God who would know their brokenness. And yet, God who came and wept and hungered and thirst and bled and died and rose from the grave. He is God with us. He is Savior with us. He is the Savior. The Lord saves Jesus, God with us. And if we don't put our hope in anything else in this life, we can put our hope fully in the fact that Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us, both fully God and fully man, that he might live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died, that we might have life and hope in him. We have Christmas because we needed Easter. We have Christmas because there was a price that had to be paid for our sin. But beautifully, God with us, Savior with us, wasn't just as a baby. It wasn't just on that day. It wasn't just in that cave with those men. And it wasn't even just with the people that would walk with him for the next several decades. If Jesus came, and Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, as Emmanuel, God with us, many, many, many years later, Jesus would tell his disciples right before he left to go back to the Father, I have been with you, but behold, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, he says, behold, I am with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You will always have me. My spirit will always reside in you, either until you come to me or I come to you, whichever is first by the will of my Father. I am with you. God sent the Son unto us that Jesus would be with us. And this phrase keeps just kind of rolling over and over and over again in our heads as we've been thinking about this sermon series, that God is faithful in all time, in all generations, seen ultimately in Jesus. And he is the one we hope in. He is the one we cry out to. He is the one we look to at this Christmas and this coming and eventually in that coming again on that day. As I was reading this week and just trying to get my head wrapped around the familiarity of these stories and uh, how they aren't meant to be familiar. They're meant to bring all. They're meant to inspire. They're meant to change the way we live. I'm reminded of, even in our own family, of just what this season does bring in terms of pain, loss, brokenness, Heartache, And I read these word, words from uh, a 19th century bishop of the Anglican Church. His name is J.C. Ryle in one of the commentaries that I was reading through. And so I want to read this just kind of as an encouragement to us and a prayer for us as we land this morning together. He says this, Would you have sweet comfort in suffering and trial? Then keep in constant view your Savior's humanity. He is the man Christ Jesus who lay on the bosom of the Virgin Mary as a little infant, 
and knows the heart of a man. He can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He has himself experienced Satan's temptations. He has endured hunger. He has shed tears. He has felt pain. Trust him at all times with all your sorrows. He will not despise you. Pour out all your heart before him in prayer and keep nothing back. He can sympathize with his people. Let these thoughts sink deep down into your minds. Let us bless God for the encouraging truths of this first chapter of the New Testament. It tells us of one who saves his people from their sins. But this is not all. It tells us that the Savior is Emmanuel, God himself, and yet God with us, God manifest in human flesh like our own. This is glad tidings. This is indeed good news. Let us feed on these truths in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen. Let's pray. We're so glad you listened to the Grace Auburn Church podcast. There's so much happening in the life of our church, and we could not be more excited about all that God is doing. For more information about ways that you can connect within the life of our church, go to our website, www.graceauburn.church.